0: Go, Z, go,
1: This is Kevin uh, from Northern California. I had called a while back about the old lady in the wheelchair at summer camp story. Uh, We just listened to your latest episode. Great job as always. Uh, My kids are here, Christopher and Olivia. Hi. And my son has a suggestion he wanted to give you for your Halloween episode. Uh, He said or his suggested title was Halloween Haunts and Legends so don't know if you want to use that but I thought it was a pretty good one um we really enjoyed the uh dog man in the or werewolf uh in the uh drainage pipe uh episode or a story and uh, just wanted to keep tell you keep up the good work anything else you guys want to tell Derek yeah go ahead Jack,
0: I really like your story. Thanks, bye. Good evening, and welcome to the Monsters Among Us Halloween Special. I'm your guide, your ghost host with the most, Derek Hayes. A big thanks to Kevin, Christopher, and Olivia for the quick shout-out. I will take Christopher's great suggestion and title this episode, Halloween Haunts and Legends. As you may have guessed, this episode deviates a bit from the normal path. Instead of playing True Encounters from Witnesses tonight, we're going to play a handful of fictional ghost-slash-campfire stories. And as an added spin, I've asked the host of several of my favorite podcasts to submit their very own favorite tale. So without further ado, I present to you the Halloween special. Before I start sharing stories submitted for this special, I thought I would read a story that frightened me as a child. The following story is from a children's book called The Scariest Stories Ever Told Part 2 by Catherine Burt. This is It Walks at midnight. Mike and Rob loved hiking in the countryside near the college they attended in Kentucky. Along with Mike's dog Ernie, they had been to most of the state parks in their area, but they were especially excited about the next hike they were going to take. They were going to the fantastic Red River Gorge over spring vacation. "'Look at those cliff walls,' said Rob on the hike to the gorge. Awesome, Mike answered. They're even steeper than I thought they'd be. After hiking for most of the afternoon, setting up camp, and then fixing dinner, they were pretty tired. Even Ernie, who had been exploring all over, looked beat. They were relaxing around the campfire, looking at the sky and listening to the night sounds. The full moon made everything look a little spooky. Mike tossed another log on the fire. They watched as the sparks floated up into the darkness. Rob reached down to scratch Ernie's ears, but Ernie was gone. Hey, asked Rob, did you hear Ernie run off? No, answered Mike, but don't worry, he'll come back. But just then they heard a yelping and a whimpering come from somewhere out in the dark woods. They both recognized Ernie's bark and stood up. Mike grabbed his flashlight and they started walking in the direction of the whimpering. Here, Ernie. Come on here, boy, they called out. Soon, they heard a rustling sound in the thick underbrush. A minute later, Ernie came bursting out of the bushes and ran toward Mike. The poor dog was trembling all over, and the fur on his back was sticking straight up. "'Hey, what's wrong, Ernie?' asked Mike. "'You look like you've seen a ghost!' Ernie just whimpered and hid behind Mike's legs. "'Whatever's in there sure scared Ernie,' Rob said. "'Maybe it's a bear, a wildcat.' Mike shined his flashlight into the dark woods where Ernie had come running out. The shadows of the trees and all the leaves made lots of fantastic shapes. Look up there, whispered Rob, pointing to a small ledge about twenty feet above the ground. What is it? Mike whispered. It's not any bear I've ever seen, Rob said. It looks more like a huge black dog. On the edge, staring down at them in the moonlight, with eyes that seemed to glow like little points of red fire, stood a large black dog. Look at the way he's moving his head, Mike said. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. Yeah, like get out of here, answered Rob. I think it's pretty good advice. No, I don't, I don't think so, said Mike. Look at his eyes. I think he wants us to come with him somewhere. You must be kidding. That dog looks like a monster, Rob replied. Now look what he's doing. As Rob and Mike watched in amazement, the huge black dog seemed to float up into the air. They floated back up the side of the cliff wall and, with one final piercing stare down at them, turned and disappeared without a sound. A minute later, they heard a blood-curdling howl from somewhere off in the distance. It sounded half-human, almost like a person crying in agony. The guys could barely sleep that night, and the next morning they went to the ranger station to report what they'd seen. When they had told their story to the ranger, he sighed. I'll be honest with you guys, he said. You aren't the first to report seeing that dog, or whatever it was. The stories are always pretty much the same. And it's always people camping in that area where you guys were, to tell the truth. I almost expected someone to report it today. Why? asked Mike. Why today? Because last night was a full moon, the ranger answered. The creature is only seen on the night of the full moon. Then, it just disappears. What, do you know what it is? asked Rob. No, we don't. It could be a dog that's gone wild or a wolf or bear that people didn't get a very good look at. Or, the ranger said after a pause, it could be a ghost. But, Mike said, I know I don't believe in ghosts either, the ranger said. But when you're out in the gorge alone on a moonlit night, you start thinking about all the stories and legends you've heard. Sometimes you start to think that anything could happen in there. Mike and Rob remembered the unearthly howl and the dog's piercing, fiery eyes. Maybe the ranger was right. Anything could happen in there. They were getting up to leave when Mike remembered something. Did any of the other people report that the dog seemed to be trying to tell them something? He asked. The ranger gave him a serious look. Then he said, As a matter of fact, another person did notice that the dog seemed to be moving his head in a strange way. Like he was trying to point somewhere. Yeah, that's what he did said Mike excitedly. That person was me, said the ranger. After I read some of the reports, I decided to try to go see the thing myself. After seeing it, I didn't know what to think. Listen, said Rob, who had been quiet for a while. Have you checked through old records and reports to see if anybody lost a dog? Yeah, I looked through the stuff in my office, which goes back ten years. Anything older than that would be at the district warehouse in Stanford. That's where our college is, said Rob. We could check out the old records. That would be great, said the ranger, but the stuff is old and messy. It could be a big job. Those records go back into the last century. I'll give it a try, said Mike. It was a busy time at school, and Rob and Mike didn't have much time for the search. They did finally get to spend a whole Saturday looking through the musty old report files. Farther and farther back in time, they went. It was interesting to read about all the different things people had lost throughout the years. Someone in 1928 had lost a Model T Ford. After six hours of searching and sneezing from all the dust, they were about to give up. Then, Mike held up an old yellowed piece of paper with some faded writing on it. Take a look at this, he said. The report was from June 22, 1935. It told of a 10-year-old boy who had been camping in the gorge with his family. He wandered off on a rainy evening and never came back. The family and park rangers searched for him, but his body was never found. Stapled to the back of the report was a piece of notebook paper. Mike read it aloud. The family's dog, a black Labrador retriever named Midnight, was also never found. We have to show this to the ranger, cried Rob. They arranged with the ranger to drive out the afternoon of the next full moon. He met them at the door of the ranger station. I checked the almanac for 1935, he said. June 22nd was a full moon. Together, all three hiked back into the area where Mike and Rob had seen the dog months earlier. Ernie seemed nervous to be back where he had gotten such a fright. The sky began to cloud over as they set up camp in the same place. Looks like it could drizzle, said the ranger. It's starting to look like that day in 1935, said Mike. The report said it was rainy. Mike, Rob, and the ranger sat quietly after dinner, waiting for something they knew might never show up. Mike didn't know which would be worse, if the dog never appeared, or if it did. Maybe he didn't want to know the dog's strange secret. Maybe it was better just to leave things alone. The campfire was burning low. Ernie was sleeping at Mike's feet. It hadn't rained, but the fog and mist had descended into the gorge, making them feel more alone than ever. Suddenly, Ernie's ears pricked up. He sniffed once or twice, and then became stiff with fear. He started to tremble and whimper. Mike petted the frightened dog and said softly, I think it's here. They all looked up through the mist at the same ledge, and there stood the great black dog. The fog made the dog's fiery eyes seem even brighter. Mike tied Ernie's leash to a log and whispered, You stay here, boy. Mike, Rob, and the rangers slowly stood up and walked toward the cliff where the dog stood motionless. Through the mist, they all noticed, again, the strange way the dog moved its head. When they were as close to the ledge as they could come without climbing, Mike nodded at Rob, and Rob took a deep breath and called out through the mist in a voice made hoarse by fear. Midnight? Midnight, take us where you want us to go, we will follow you. What the dog did next sent chills of terror up the spines of all three of them. He turned his blazing eyes directly at them and howled, an unearthly howl, up at the fog-shrouded full moon. Then, he half-walked, half-floated, partway down the steep cliff wall. When the ranger shined his flashlight toward the dog, they saw that there was a small hidden rock path leading up the face of the cliff. It had been hidden in the mist. "'Come on,' said Rob, Midnight's showing us the path." They scrambled up the steep rocky path, but they found that the dog waited for them. On and on, the black dog led them through the thick bushes and underbrush, around wild rock formations, over giant boulders and thick tree roots. Every now and then, the full moon broke through the thick trees and lit up the ghostly forest scene. And always, the dog leading them on. Waiting for them, his blazing red eyes leading the way. After 45 minutes, when they were deep into the gorge, in an isolated place where none of them have ever been, midnight stopped. He waited for them at the bottom of a tall, steep rock cliff. They could barely make out the top of the cliff. It had to be 40 feet up. Midnight stood on a pile of rocks and dirt, which was overgrown with plants and bushes. In the light of the ranger's lantern, shining through the fog, they watched as Midnight moved his head in that odd way again and again. He seemed to be directing them toward the mound of rocks. "'That's where he wants us to look,' whispered Mike. As if he had heard Mike's whisper, the great dog tilted his head back and howled at the full moon, in a way that they'd never heard a dog howl. The dog had in it fifty long years of sadness... Heartbreak and lonely wandering. It sounded human. Then, as they watched, the dog seemed to slowly float up and away from them. The last thing they saw was the fiery red eyes floating away in the mist. When the dog was gone, the ranger started to clear away the small pile of rocks and bushes where the dog had stood. Mike held the lantern. After a few minutes of digging with his shovel, the ranger uncovered something small and white. He picked it up and held it in the lantern's light. It was a bone. Working quickly, they found a small human skeleton, crumpled as if from a fall. The skull had a large crack in it, but touching the human skeleton was the skeleton of a huge dog. Around the dog's skeleton was a rotted leather collar that crumbled when Rob picked it up. Attached to the collar was a dog tag. Rob held it with shaking hands. As they read the name in the light of the lantern, they heard in the distance, a strange, unearthly howl, of the ghostly dog who had led them to this spot. The name on the dog tag was Midnight. If you're a listener to this show, you know I have a slight and unexplainable fear of ghost dogs. So obviously, this one hit a nerve growing up. So our first story of the evening is an original piece by one of the co-hosts of an amazing show called Not Alone Podcast. Together with his more skeptical partner, Jason, Sam explores all things paranormal and supernatural on their weekly show. I highly suggest you give them a listen when you can. The following is Sam Fredrickson's submission.
2: Hello there. My name is Sam Fredrickson, and I'm from Boise, Idaho, and, uh, well, I've got a story for you. So, essentially... I don't know if anybody listening is from Boise or, or the Treasure Valley or Idaho at all. But if you are, you're probably familiar with the little town of Cuna, which is, I mean, I don't want to say it's the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like the boundary to nowhere. It's like you have less and less and less and less and less. And then you have Cuna, And then after Cuna, there's just, there's nothing at all. And, uh. You know, it's got it's got a few of its redeeming qualities. You know, one is that it's it's pretty much the desert, pretty much just open desert land, uh, and it has this excellent space that we would go to when we were, you know, teenagers, young adults. Uh, this excellent space called Initial Point, and essentially, it's it's the area where the entirety of Idaho is mapped. From. Like if if you have to have a reference point, that is the area that all geological surveys for Idaho begin, and it's uh, it's that's why it's called initial point. So it's um it's a pretty popular place. Essentially, what it is is a a tiny tiny mountain. It's like bigger than a hill, definitely smaller than a mountain, but it I'll call it a tiny mountain. And essentially, you can I mean you can hike up it, you can drive up it, but the it, it's like a one lane road. It's not even a road. It's just a dirt path. And so if you're going up and somebody else is coming down, then it's it's really not great. However, once you're up there, I mean, you can see pretty much this entire Treasure Valley, which is which is what Boise sits in is the Treasure Valley. Uh, you can see Boise, the surrounding towns of Caldwell, Nampa, Meridian. You can see planes coming in going out from the airport. You can see the moon rising. You can see the stars. Uh, unlike anywhere else in in the valley, it's truly one of the most beautiful places uh, to me, at least. I, I like that kind of open desert, open air. Uh, you know, nothing on your mind, nothing to nothing to do, nothing to do but but just sit and think and relax. And that's for me. That's what initial point always was. I say was because I haven't been back there in seven years. Because I had, well, let's just say that I had an experience. So, essentially, I'm I'm 18. And I am, it, you know, you could go out there with your friends or you could go out there alone. And the majority of people didn't go out there alone, but I did. I always found it very calming, very soothing. And there were many nights where I, would just I had this beautiful black Nissan truck, just this little truck, nothing too big or, or bad, and that and it it was able to get up this road that big trucks wouldn't be able to, and I would just take it and I'd sit up at the, the top of initial point and I'd um, I just think, you know, sometimes I'd I'd pull out a blanket, pull out a, a pillow and just kind of lay in the back of the truck bed and and look up at the sky, and. That's, I mean, that's pretty much where I was when this happened. That's that's exactly what I was doing. I was on top of initial point in the back of my truck, laying down. I actually had, a, I was very well prepared this time. I had a sleeping bag. I had two or three pillows, a big heavy blanket on top of it. It was beautiful. I was just going to sleep there all night, wake up in the morning, go back home, shower, go to work. It's like camping, but you don't even have to get out of the car, so... So I fall asleep and <clears throat> I wake up oh I wanna say it was it was probably about three in the morning, maybe maybe even a little earlier, but in any case it was it was dark still, for sure. And it was quiet and there were no planes coming in and out of the airport. The majority of lights in the valley were still off, and I could see the the stars just beautifully, like, like it, it seemed clearer than it had ever been before, the night sky. And I kind of laid there. I was, I don't know why, but I was wide awake. I, I did not feel sleep, I did not feel tired, and I did not have any sort of visual perceptional issues. I was not experiencing sleep paralysis or anything, I know, because I actually sat up and I readjusted myself a little bit. I looked up at the sky for maybe five minutes. After that, I I sat up and I read a book I had brought. I can't even remember what it was. Something about the Mojave Desert. I don't know. And suddenly I just get this feeling. And it says, go home. What are you doing out here? This isn't for you right now. This isn't this place is not meant for you, at this point in time. And it was a strange feeling. I'd never, I'd never felt anything quite like it, and I, I can honestly say I've never felt anything like it since. But it was a very clear message that I was getting. And the problem was, like I said, this this little dirt path. I mean, it's so narrow. You. It would take just one slight misturn to essentially fall down this mini-mountain. But the feeling was so real, so present, and so tangible that I, I simply had no choice. And so I got up, I packed my stuff up. You know, a good thing was I was only 25 minutes from home. It's not going to, like, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in danger of, of you know, uh, what would that be called? Distracted driving or, or anything like that, but I just knew I had to leave. And so i pack up all my stuff, just put my sleeping bag back in its stuff sack and and start down the, the hill. It takes me probably 7 or 8 minutes and, because I'm going 2 or 3 miles an hour, I just really don't want to die today. And as I approach the bottom of the hill, you then have another Probably three to four minutes on a really bumpy, choppy dirt road before you hit the highway. And I kind of notice, as soon as I get to the bottom of the the mountain, bottom of initial point, I notice it starts to get brighter. And I don't really know why, but I look at my clock and suddenly, I I can't confirm this for sure, but I feel like my clock said something like 630 which didn't make any sense to me because we would have lost three and a half hours, but 6.30 is what it said in my mind, at least. And so I say, okay, it's probably just the sun coming up. And I kind of keep my eye on the clock as I as I get further and further from the mountain and closer and closer to the highway. It gets brighter and brighter, and I see the numbers ticking up, ticking up, ticking up. Six, six, oh, 6.31, 6.32, 6.33. After about 10 minutes... I hit the freeway or I hit the highway and suddenly the light stops and I look back at my clock and it says 325, something like that, the time that it should be, you know, and I just remember sitting there for a moment and kind of looking around and as I'm driving, I pull off to a rest area. I pull off to this rest area, I look over, and I, I position myself so that I can see initial point, And over initial point is what only appears to me as a, a rift. A bright, cosmic, glowing tear in the fabric of space and time. And it was pure white, it was pure radiance, it was pure energy and I saw things going down from the rift and saw things going up to the rift but I couldn't make anything out it was just little points of blackness in the actual in the actual light itself and as I'm watching suddenly I realize the light gets bigger and bigger and at first I think that it's it's basically the the rift widening and opening and opening and then I realize that it's not just that it's getting closer and closer and closer and as I as I realize this I say okay alright alright I'll play the game it's time to go it's time to go and I jump back in my truck I had been back out in in the bed looking for a moment I jump back in my truck I start driving and I make it maybe a hundred feet until suddenly I can't see anything I cannot move I do I remember specifically thinking to myself okay, breathe Sam, you have to breathe, you have to breathe and I can't even do that and I remember the, the distinct the distinct sensation of being lifted off the ground and then that's it Ev- everything else is black and essentially I wake up the next morning I don't wake up where my car was I don't wake up at an initial point. I don't wake up at home. I wake up in the parking lot of a Walmart in Meridian, which is about 15 miles from Kuna. I wake up at the in the parking lot of a Walmart in Meridian. It's about 6:30 a.m. at that point, and I wake up to a, a cop basically tapping on the window saying, "Hey, are you okay? If you're okay, you need to to move it on. If you're not okay, you, you know, you can come with me." And I I say, "I'm I'm sorry, officer. My bad. I just. I guess I just lost track of time. And I drive home. And once I get there, I still have to go to work. I still have things to do. So I go, I take a shower. And in the shower, I notice on my right forearm three dots in a triangular pattern. Each one is about two centimeters apart and I just remember poking the center of that triangle and then I remember blackness and then I remember waking up at 6.30pm at I had missed my shift, I hadn't called in my boss was pissed at me, I, I had missed 17 calls from work, two from my dad, three from my girlfriend nobody had known where I was since the last day and that was it and I haven't been back since. So, just a word of warning if you're looking for something, or even if you're not, the desert is not always the best
0: place to be. Thank you so much, Sam, for taking the time to send this story in. Although this story is fictional, there have been countless experiences with lights in the sky in the deserts of the US, some of which have involved abduction. Well done, Sam, and thank you again for submitting. Remember, you can catch Not Alone Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. And also, a link to each show can be found in the show notes for tonight's episode by visiting www.monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash show notes. Up next is a familiar voice. You may recall this host when she was a guest on the Season 3 finale show. Well, Shannon Lagro of Into the Fray is back And this time, she brought along a spooky Irish tale to share with us.
3: This comes from Irish Ghosts by John J. Dunn. It was a dark night in the old Dublin district known as Hell. Through an alleyway black as pitch, the figure of a woman flitted silently. Unheard, but not unseen, she passed a fleeting silhouette against a lighted window. Next moment, her terrified screams shattered the silence, petrifying into numb horror all who were within earshot in the congested houses around. The incident was just another chapter in the paralyzing reign of terror that made the streets and alleys of Old Dublin a place of dread throughout the long, dark months of one fear-ridden winter. Lone women became the subjects of savage attacks. These came unexpectedly, always at night, and in Dublin homes and taverns it was whispered that the attacker was a big black pig, and they called it the Dolicher. It had all started sometime earlier, when one of the most notorious criminals ever to be thrown behind bars in the formidable Old Black Dog Prison committed suicide. This man's name was Olicher, and he had been sentenced to death for the murder of a woman. With Oletcher cheating the gallows at the last minute in so dramatic a fashion, it was probably inevitable that rumors should run rife, but an incident that took place in the Black Dog Prison the night after Oletcher's suicide struck terror into the entire town. A sentry who had been on guard in the prison was found unconscious and very badly mauled. When he regained consciousness... He said that he had been attacked by a big black pig. News of this strange affair had barely filtered out of the prison precincts when the incident was followed by something even stranger and more bizarre. Another sentry simply vanished into thin air. This man's gun was found behind the sentry box with his clothes draped around it. But of the man himself, there was not a trace. It was immediately assumed that he had been devoured by the black pig. The town was soon in ferment. Fear stalked the streets after dark, and most people, except the foolhardy few, avoided going abroad after nightfall. Then the rumors began to spread, and one report followed another. All from women claiming to have encountered the black pig. Soon it became apparent that most of the reports were genuine and not mere figments of imagination inspired by the strange occurrences at the Black Dog Prison. Several more women were attacked by the Black Pig and the slightest shuffle in a silent street sent people hurrying for shelter. Dublin by night became a ghost town. It was generally accepted that the Black Pig was the ghost of Oletcher, On a rampage of vengeance, and the terrible thing that stalked the alleyways under the cloak of darkness became known as the Dolacher. But that long, fear-ridden winter passed, and with it passed the Dolacher. The attack ceased, and the town breathed freely again. There were recurrences of the attacks the following winter, and reports suggest that the mystery was solved when a blacksmith returning home from a tavern borrowed a woman's cloak to protect him from the rain. He was attacked, but he overpowered his assailant, who turned out to be the sentry from the prison who had so mysteriously disappeared. He had clad himself in the skin of a large black pig. The eerie tale of the Dolacher is part of Dublin folklore. Ghost or psychopath? The answer remains hidden in the stones of hell.
0: Thank you, Shannon. It's always great to hear from you. An Irish ghost pig that kills. No thanks. I thought this one was fitting, due in part because of the origin of the holiday we are celebrating. After all, Halloween has its roots in that part of the world. So thank you again, Shannon, for the creepy tale. Do yourself a favor and check out Into the Fray if you haven't already. Shannon is putting out some awesome content. Let us pass the flashlight to our next storyteller. The following story was submitted by Justin of Zingness This Podcast.
4: Hey, Derek and fans of Monsters Among Us. This is Zinger from the Zing this Podcast. And I think it's really awesome that um, we're doing these campfire ghost stories or whatever they're going to be called. But I've got one that is very interesting, in my opinion. So few years back, um, me and one of my buddies, we would go out and fish and everything, and you know, fishing, we'd we'd sit there and talk and everything, and one time, this is actually the first time we were going, um, it was up in the mountains where I live, and it's a reservoir lake, which they are, these basically tucked way up away in the mountains, dammed up lakes, that are isolated, big, and very quiet, with, with normally very much in national forests, so we got up there and we were sitting there just, you know, chit chatting everything and and, you know, fishing buddies talk and well it got to the point where we just kinda were like chatting with each other and the topic of the paranormal came up. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, what we believe in and what we don't and we, we were talking about bigfoot because so we're like oh, you know, this is an isolated area, you know, could see one, you know, joking around like that. And um he got the ghost real quick and I kind of was like eh, I don't know about that and he goes I know I know for sure he proceeded then to tell me about his ghost experience and I trust him um, he, he is one to tell a fish uh, I caught a fish this big and I was with him he does accurately show so I trust the guy on this stuff but what he told me made my skin crawl because we were out in the middle of nowhere and this story was very creepy So, he um, proceeded to tell me one night when he was coming home from, I think it was a basketball game he had at school when he was in high school, played basketball. And he had heard that, you know, on this one road, if you're driving at night, you know, to be careful. Because, you know, you're not going to be able to see people when you're coming around in turns and stuff. Well, he was driving, and he said that he came around a turn and this... He said that this woman in a dress ran out in the middle of the road. And he slammed on his brakes. He said that he he didn't he knew he didn't have enough time, so he slammed on his brakes. And he said that the woman, basically, he hit the woman. But when I say hit, I mean, his vehicle kind of went through her. Like, he said that he saw her go into the front of the car, and then she just sort of vanished into thin air. And he said that he sat there for a minute... Was so scared to get out of the car, and he got out and he was shaking. He said he couldn't he couldn't rationalize what happened. He he, he just thought he had made he imagined that that he hit somebody. Or that or that she she like vanished. But um, he got out and looked around and didn't see a thing. And he he was like I swore I saw something, but. He goes, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to go. And he apparently a few days later was telling somebody about that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that that, that ghost too. And he said that he did not take that road for almost a year. He took the longer way home from then on out. And he said that it just terrified him. And it was really eerie to hear this, mind you, when we were up the mountains and everything. And, and it was an overcast and kind of cloudy day. We had driven through fog to get up there, so I mean, I don't think he was messing with me because he seemed pretty shaken about it. He he didn't. I, I asked him a few follow-up questions, and he goes, "I don't know. I never, I never wanted to drive on that road at that time again. That it was, it just creeped him out a lot." So I mean, I guess it's my spooky ghost story. Yeah, um, great show. I, I enjoy listening to it. And once again, thanks for being on Zingness. Um, everyone from Monsters Among Us, have a very a spooky day.
0: Thank you, Justin. Let me tell you, if you're a comic book fan, or just a fan of pop culture in general, and haven't already listened to Zeng This, do yourself a favor, and do so today. I'll make it even easier for you. As Zinger said in his story, I was recently a guest on Zeng This to talk cryptids and other paranormal entities, so go check out that episode. Thank you again, Zinger. You can't go wrong. With the classic Woman in White story. Our next contributor is someone that you're probably familiar with but don't quite know it. Corey Trim, the talented artist that submits drawings for each and every episode, sent in his own original story. Take it away, Corey.
5: It sat in the center of a growing suburban community, 3,000 acres of land locally known as the Amber Forest. It was a place that no one liked. The reasons why are as varied as the number of persons you could ask. To the passerby it drew no special attention. It was just a stretch of woods seemingly like any other. To stop and look at it, however, and observe the forest for its trees, brought about a different reaction. Some people would tell you that it was ugly, that its trees were sickly and its fields of grass were mottled with patches of off-colored weeds and dirt. The leaves of the trees were never vibrant, but always a dull hue, and many of them had unattractive spots that brought about thoughts of disease. The tops of many trees had dried out bare branches like they had recently weathered a storm. These strangled capillaries reached uselessly for the sky year-round. They never produced foliage, and they never rotted away. Other complaints about the forest was that it did not lend itself to hikes. It had far too many gnarled roots and muddy patches, To go walking in the woods was to invite injury, or worse. Others complained that it smelled, especially after a rain. They would claim the forest emitted a foul odor that was unlike the natural earthy scent one would find in similar stretches of woods. Some would argue that there were not similar stretches of woods anywhere, that the amber forest was a unique anomaly. What made the woods unsavory to others were the stories linked to it. People claimed that a pack of jet black wolves hunted the grounds of the amber forest. Some claimed that the wolves were not natural creatures, but supernatural, and there were stories told of encounters with the beasts. The wolves traveled in and out of shadows and had blood red eyes that glowed in the dark. The wolves did not bay at the moon, but roared at the night with the resonating menace of a lion. Some told legend of a covered bridge somewhere deep in the center of the woods, left from the time of pioneering settlers. Some said the bridge was a portal between the material world and that of the spirit. Others claimed that it was a gateway to hell and to travel from one side to the next damned your soul. Some claimed that the legends of the cursed bridge came from the Civil War and a battle fought in the creek that it crosses. Angry souls of Confederate and Union soldiers who died on those grounds condemn all those that trespass on their final resting place. Others said that they believe a broken-hearted lover hung themselves inside the bridge. Some claim to have been to it and others claim it doesn't exist at all. Perhaps the most popular legend regarding the Amber Forest comes from its namesake. The story dates back to the late 1800s and is linked to a prominent business family whose descendants still live in the town to this day. Catherine Hollander was a young woman who fell in love with a man, Ming Lee, a Chinese immigrant. The two were madly in love with one another, but were forced to keep it secret. Mixed relationships were greatly frowned upon at the time and Catherine's parents would have never accepted it. Catherine became pregnant with Ming's child in January of 1896, and the two were frightened of anyone finding out, and made plans to elope and move east. Catherine's younger brother learned of the pregnancy and told their parents before they could leave. Catherine's father was furious and attacked Ming in a fit of rage. The young man was mortally wounded in the violent confrontation, and Catherine was locked up inside the Hollanders' home. Ming's death was ruled a farming accident, and Catherine's pregnancy was kept secret by claiming she had come down with a debilitating illness. Catherine's child was born on October 30th of 1896, and shortly after the birth, legend says her mother forced her to abandon the baby girl in the woods. She pleaded with her mother to not make her do it, and they could claim to have adopted the child, but her mother would not hear it. The child was a black mark on their family name, and she would not allow the child to live in her home. Catherine wandered the woods, sobbing, trying to find a way out of her situation. She had no money and no one to turn to. There was no place for her to go. Everyone in town knew her family well. If she showed up on their doorstep begging for help, they'd know her shame and most likely turn her away. She was lost with nowhere to turn. She refused to leave her child alone, however, and stayed with it, taking care of it the best she could. Catherine was found a month later by a hunter. She appeared to have died of exposure and malnutrition. She held in her arms a baby's blanket, and on the ground beside her written in the mud was the name Amber. The child was never found. Some say the child was eaten by the wolves, others say she was raised by them. Regardless of the child's fate, the woods are an epitaph to her name. Despite all the supernatural legends and unsavory descriptions, nothing explains what the Amber Forest really is. Very little has been written about it in the time since it's had its name. But with the few lines that can be found, they speak volumes. The first recorded line was from a teacher's journal in 1908 at the local elementary school. The children continually insist to me that a classmate by the name of Franklin Todd was struck off by a wolf. We have no such student on record, and no family by the name of Todd in our town. The children seem to wear melancholy expressions whenever I take them to play in the fields near the amber forest. I have since taken them on walks to more distant pastures and their spirits seem lifted, and the talk of Franklin Todd has faded away. The second letter was from a union contractor sent to restore a home near the edge of the woods. All of the wood in the home is rotted out. I don't know how it's still standing. The majority of the wiring in the home has shorts and could easily cause a fire. The basement is completely washed out. The west wall has collapsed completely, and there is a steady stream of water pouring through it. I don't know what miracle worker built this place, but the grounds near the amber forest is no place for a home. Every place built near it has problems. I'd cut your losses and leave it. The final words is from an artist who was commissioned to do a painting of the woods for the city hall. The powers that be wanted to recognize the location as part of the town's history. The artist returned the salary along with a note. I studied the amber forest for days, trying to find a spot that captured me. A striking image I could start with. The more I looked at it, the more I wanted to leave it alone. I found myself almost ill trying to conceive it on the canvas. Whatever this woods is, it haunts me. I don't think the amber forest can be captured in such a way. You should consider leaving this project alone.
0: What you just listened to was the opening to an audiobook that Corey not only performed, but also supplied cover art for. Follow the link in the show notes to hear more chapters to that series of short stories. Thanks again, Corey. Our next-to-last submitter hosts a show I recently found while searching out partnerships for Cryptic Crate. Her show, Southern Grimoire, is a weekly visit to strange occurrences, hauntings, cryptic creatures, and unsolved crime in the southern U.S., but more specifically, Oklahoma. K.D. Burr was kind enough to record one of her favorite stories from childhood, and coincidentally, Also, one of mine.
6: Harold, From Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. When it got hot in the valley, Thomas and Alfred drove their cows up to a cool, green pasture in the mountains to graze. Usually, they stayed there with the cows for two months, then they brought them down to the valley again. The work was easy enough, but oh, was it boring! All day, the two men tended their cows. At night, they went back to the tiny hut where they lived. They ate supper and worked in the garden and went to sleep. It was always the same, day in and day out. Then, Thomas had an idea that changed everything. "'Let's make a doll the size of a man,' he said. "'It would be fun to make, and we could put it in the garden to scare away the birds.' It should look like Harold, Alfred said. Harold was a farmer they both hated. They made the doll out of old sacks stuffed with straw. They gave it a pointy nose like Harold's and tiny eyes just like his. Then they added dark hair and a twisted frown. Of course, they also gave it Harold's name. Each morning, on their way to the pasture, they tied Harold to a pole in the garden to scare away the birds. Each night they brought him inside so that he wouldn't get ruined if it rained. When they were feeling playful, they would talk to him. One of them might say, How are the vegetables growing today, Harold? Then the other, making believe he was Harold, would answer in a crazy voice.
1: Very slowly.
6: They would both laugh, but not Harold. Whenever something went wrong, they took it out on Harold They would curse at him, even kick him or punch him. Sometimes one of them would take the food they were eating, which they were both sick to death of, and smear it on the doll's face. How do you like that stew, Harold? he would ask. Well, you'd better eat it, or else. Then the two men would howl with laughter. One night, after Thomas had wiped Harold's face with food, Harold grunted. Did you hear that? Alfred asked. It was Harold, Thomas said. I was watching him when it happened. I can't believe it. How could he grunt? Alfred asked. He's just a sack of straw. It's not possible. Let's throw him in the fire, said Thomas. And that will be that. No, let's not do anything stupid, said Alfred. We don't know what's going on. When we move the cows down, we'll leave him behind. For now, let's just keep an eye on him. So they left Harold sitting in a corner of the hut. They didn't talk to him or take him outside anymore. Now and then, the doll grunted. But that was all. After a few days, they decided there was nothing to be afraid of. Maybe a mouse or some insects had gotten inside Harold, and they were making those sounds. So Thomas and Alfred went back to their old ways. Each morning, they put Harold out in the garden, and each night, they brought him back into the hut. When they felt playful, they joked with him. When they felt mean, they treated him as badly as ever. Then one night, Alfred noticed something that frightened him. Harold is growing, he said. I was thinking the same thing, Thomas said. Maybe it's just our imagination, Alfred replied. We've been up here on this mountain for too long. The next morning, while they were eating, Harold stood up and walked right out of the hut. He climbed up on the roof and trotted back and forth, like a horse on its hind legs. All day and all night long, he trotted like that. In the morning, Harold climbed down and stood in a far corner of the pasture. The men had no idea what he would do next, and they were afraid. They decided to take the cows down into the valley that same day. When they left, Harold was nowhere in sight. They felt as if they had escaped a great danger and began joking and singing. But when they had gone only a mile or two, they realized they had forgotten to bring the milking stools. Neither one of them wanted to go back for them, but the stools would cost a lot to replace. There really is nothing to be afraid of, they told one another. After all, what could a doll do? They drew straws to see which one would go back. It was Thomas. I'll catch up with you, he said, and Alfred walked on towards the valley. When Alfred came to a rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He didn't see him anywhere, but what he did see was Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled down and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun.
0: Thank you, KD. I always loved this story growing up, and in fact, when I still worked in the entertainment industry, my good friend and writing partner secured the film rights to Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Together, we wrote a script which ultimately was not picked up, but when we were deciding which stories to include in the feature-length script, I immediately thought of Harold. Well, with budget and shooting complications in mind, we eventually decided to skip that story. A decision that still haunts me today. Hopefully, when Guillermo del Toro finally makes the film, he will include Harold. Thank you again, Katie, for submitting. I love her show and highly recommend you give it a listen. And finally, our last story of the evening. We've made a near full circle in our proverbial campfire. And at last we hand the flashlight over to David Flora and Dave Stecco of Blurry Photos. Dave and David were kind enough to lend me a story from one of their ghost story episodes. With a rare mix of spooky and funny, here is David Flora with some help from Dave Stecco.
1: I've got a story that I found in the Urban Legends section of one story site. Nice. This one is called... The clown statue.
6: Haunting, haunting. <laughs> Hello, <kids>.
4: guild.
0: <laughs> Uncle Trippy. Am I laughing or am I crying? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> Either way, I could use the hug. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A few years ago, there was a wealthy couple who had two young children, a boy and a girl. The family lived in a large house in Newport Beach, California.
6: Nice.
1: After taking care of their kids all week, the mother and father decided that they needed a break. So they booked a table for dinner at a nice restaurant. That evening, they called a teenage girl they knew and arranged... (laughs) Yeah! Yeah! Jesus, sorry. I'm the worst person ever. (laughs) And and arranged for her to come over and babysit their children while while they were out. Whoops. When the babysitter arrived, the parents told her to fix supper for the kids and put them to bed. After that, you can just watch TV and help yourself to anything in the fridge, said the father. And if you wouldn't mind, said the mother, could you watch TV in our bedroom? The kids have been having nightmares recently, so if you hear them crying, you can just go in and calm them down. The babysitter happily agreed, and the parents left for their dinner date. The girl gave the children some milk and cookies, then she sent them upstairs to bed. She started to read them a bedtime story, and before long, the little boy and girl were fast asleep. After tucking them in, she switched off the lights and went to watch TV. When the babysitter walked into the parents' bedroom and sat down she noticed that there was a creepy-looking clown statue standing in the corner of the room. She tried to ignore it, but it looked so eerie and disturbing that it sent chills down her spine. She felt as though its eyes were staring straight at her while she watched TV. As time passed, the babysitter started to feel more and more uneasy about the clown statue. Whenever she glanced at it, she got the unsettling feeling that it had moved ever so slightly. No, uh, no. Finally. The clown statue began to freak her out so much, she couldn't handle it any longer. She decided to go downstairs and phone the parents. When she dialed the number they had left for her, the mother answered. "'Hi, it's me,' said the babysitter. "'Everything's fine. The kids are fast asleep in bed, but I was just wondering, would it be okay if I watch TV downstairs?' "'Of course,' replied the mother. "'But why?' "'I know it sounds silly,' said the girl. "'But the clown statue's really creeping me out.' "'The clown statue?' asked the mother. "'Yeah, the clown statue in your bedroom,' the girl replied. "'The phone went silent for a moment. "'Listen to me very carefully,' said the mother. "'Take the children and get out of the house. "'We will call the police. "'Go, now!' "'What's wrong?' asked the girl. "'The mother replied, "'We don't have a clown statue.' "'For a second, the babysitter just stood there, stunned. "'Then she dropped the phone and raced upstairs and grabbed the children.' Carrying one under each arm, she raced downstairs again and fled out to the street. Huddled on the sidewalk, comforting the two children, the babysitter looked up at the bedroom window and saw something that made her scream out in horror. Peeking through a gap in the curtains was the white, painted face of a clown. It stared at her for a moment, then sank back into the darkness. Within minutes, the police arrived and cautiously entered the house. In the upstairs bedroom, they found a man dressed in a clown suit. When they arrested him, they found a knife concealed in his costume. The clown turned out to be a mentally disturbed midget who was a convicted murderer and cold-blooded killer. The evil man had been stalking the family for months, lurking in their attic during the daytime, and coming out to sneak around the house at night. For weeks, the children had been complaining about a clown statue that stood in their room and watched them sleep, but the parents just dismissed this as nightmares.
0: Thank you, Dave and David. It's no secret that Blurry Photos is my all-time favorite podcast. I still get excited every time a new show drops. So do me and yourself a solid and check them out today. And that's going to do it for this very special episode. I'll be back next week with your regularly scheduled programming. And I want to thank all the hosts that submitted stories tonight, and I want to thank everyone out there listening for tuning in. I realize it's not normal for us to play fictional stories on the show, but Halloween is by far my favorite holiday, and I wanted to do something fun with it. So, thank you for humoring me. And don't forget to check out the shows featured on tonight's episode. The best way for shows to grow, including my own, is by word of mouth. So go, listen, listen share with friends, and most of all, enjoy. If you have a story you'd like to submit, please call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or go to the Report Your Sightings tab on the website. I'm currently taking all submissions, but if you have a Bigfoot, Dogman, Skinwalker, or other upright cryptid story, I'm especially looking for those. Be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. If you love the show, give it five stars. Who needs four when you can do five? If you don't love the show, let's just keep that to yourself. A reminder that the t-shirts featuring the infamous mirrored men are still available on the website. The first batch mails out next week, so there's still time to get yours. And lastly, the holidays are coming up, so if you're looking for a gift for that cryptid fan in your life, look no further than Cryptid Crate. Gift options are available, and if you order before November 15th, your special recipient will receive the box well before the holidays. Simply visit CryptidCrate.com for more information. Special thanks to Corey Trim for his amazing artwork on the show, and music from tonight's episode was provided by MyU and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and have a happy Halloween.